Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On today's show, we are talking to Ricardo Fernandez, who's the head of new business and also in charge of strategic partnerships at Prodigy Finance. But before that, hello, Jack, and hello, Sean. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. It's good to be back. I saw that you you got quite um, animated about the vegan sausage roll last week. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I just can't believe that, that there's so much chat about a new menu item. I know it's all it's all just PR stuff, but I just it's just like people are scared that we're not taking away your meat. The meat is still there. You can still buy a normal sausage roll. It's yes. not being replaced. Greg's is the pinup <laughs> for all gammon men in this country. Yeah, you, you should not infiltrate that. But it's bad enough they're not getting the Brexit deal they want, you know. <laughs> no, it's yeah, it's a fucking joke. Over, over Christmas, uh, in my dad's church, I met the. Uh, I can't remember his name now, Sir, whatever his name is, the person who basically oversaw the growth of Greg's as a nationwide brand. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, incredible. What a hero. Don't Uh, see enough of them in London, not going to lie. There's too many Pretz and Costas. He seemed reasonably conservative and reasonably kind of not, you know, Greg's. Newcastle brand, you know, and all of that, but no. Is it Newcastle brand? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. Did you not know that? No, no. I Go don't. to Newcastle, there's a Greg's on literally every other street. I mean, that doesn't surprise me anyway, but... No, it's not your... I, I was always quite annoyed when they tried to kind of portray themselves as like some Yorkshire baker. Yeah, that's what I always assumed. No, no, Newcastle. Absolutely, oh. Newcastle. It's all a lie. That, that, you see, is a bigger controversy than the yeah. vegan sausage yeah. roll. Exactly, yeah. Kidding you and thinking it's like Hovis. Yeah. yeah. Not Just focusing not. on the real issues here. Yeah. <laughs> Piers Morgan, I was very angry. Oh. About? Well, he's very angry about everything. I ordered, an, <laughs> I ordered a real meat one. Yeah, Look about, at me eating my real meat sausage roll. You vegans aren't going to get me to save the world and look after my health. He, go, he went on about kind of, no one asked for this, you kind of politically correct. Oh, because he's in touch with all millennials and young people who actually want to change their lifestyles and diet, isn't he, Piers Morgan? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's very much in touch yeah. with, with the youth of the country. And you know what, as well, like, he's massive on toxic masculinity because he embodies that yeah. perfectly. But, you know, the prime example of masculinity being James Bond, he had a go at him for carrying a papoose with a baby in. Yes, he did. Like, what? who do you think you are? He just grinds my gears, and I'm an Arsenal fan as well, and we all get lumbered in with the, you know, Piers Morgan, Gerald McFan, you're all like him. No, I can't stand him. Getting back to technology. <laughs> no, this is the Piers Morgan hate <laughs> show. No, it's not, it's not. We do have Ricardo Fernandez. Uh, we are going to be talking about Prodigy Finance. Um, so, uh, look, one thing to mention... Unfortunately, it seems that some rather heavy-set colleagues were walking past the room whilst we were recording this interview. There were a few loud footsteps towards the beginning. They do settle down. Stick with it, though, because Ricardo makes some fantastic points. Hope you enjoy the listen, and we will have some thoughts on it afterwards. So on today's podcast, we are chatting to Ricardo. Uh, Ricardo, you are the head of new business, but you also have oversight of strategic partnerships at uh, Prodigy Finance. Yes. Uh, where, where are you joining us? You're on the phone. Where are you joining us from? So I'm currently um, talking to you from Madrid in Spain. I, I actually work remotely uh, for Project Finance uh, between our different offices in, in London, in New York, in Cape Town. But my 
home and my family are based in Madrid. Um, so it's, it's a great place to be uh, chatting and working from. I'm assuming that Madrid's gotten cold now. Cold and rainy, a very, uh, a very, very rainy November, unfortunately. Oh, really? Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's surprising. You know, normally we get a good 20 days of sun, but this year it's been very, very rainy. Yeah. Uh, but it's not bad. Eh? Not, not like the cold uh, of New York and other cities. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I, I always forget that New York um, has fairly horrific weather. I suppose, I suppose if, if you were going to go to any of your offices right now, Cape Town would obviously be the, the choice destination. Yes, and I will be going to Cape Town in three days' time. We actually ah. have our, our whole company get-together in beautiful late November when it's uh, <laughs> the start of the summer there. We actually all get together from our offices in New York, in London, and actually other remote people working in, in India. And uh, actually spend a whole week together, which you know is, is something really important for uh, for a company that is based in, in such remote places and, and really needs to create a a culture and, and maintain it, you know, year out and year out. Well, look, the sympathy that I, I built up for you over the rain and the cold in Madrid has evaporated. But um, <laughs> look, uh, obviously, yeah. we're, we're beginning to kind of get into the culture of the business and, and what it is. But first of all, if someone's not familiar with Prodigy Finance, who are you? What's the product? What, what are you guys trying to do? So Prodigy Finance is a cross-border lender um, that we focus on student lending. Um, we, we basically have been giving loans for about the last 10 years to international students going to the top universities uh, around the world. Um, over the last 10 years, we've, uh, we've developed the relationships with other, over 500 schools in more than 20 countries. You know, we've given loans to over 15,000 uh, students. And we, we basically pioneered the concept of cross-border lending. And we did that with the people that most need it, which are you know, students that are leaving their home country you know, to, uh, to, to really grow as individuals and basically don't have access to funding. Why is that something that people are interested in doing? I mean, is this, is this coming from, say, uh, the UK? If, 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 if the UK wanted more people to attend Oxford and Cambridge and diversify their pool of students, are they looking to fund people from different countries that maybe don't have access? And, and how is this different from the traditional models that are available for students exist, that, that do exist? Yeah. No, so, so this is a huge challenge for universities, and, and, it, and it's been for, for decades. The, the reality is, you know, universities want to attract the top talent anywhere in the world, you know, no matter where, you know, from the US, you know, from other European countries, from China, from India, from Africa, and, and from Latin America. But the reality is they only get access to people that can actually afford to pay these, you know, fifty to $100,000 per year tuition and cost of attendances. Mm. So until we came along, you know, people either had to, you know, get together their family, get some money, maybe convince a local lender. And if you were an American or European, you, you might get lucky. You might have access to the funding. But if you were coming from a developing nation like India or, you know, any African country, Latin America, you could have a really hard time to get the money to go study abroad. And even worse, you're leaving the country. So a bank, a local bank is, is, is going to have a really hard time giving you that money. But the reality is these individuals, once they finish these masters and these degrees, are getting the same job no matter what their nationality and their country of residence. So we came along and we, we tried to basically fix this problem from a from a very small place. You know, this this is a problem that the three co-founders saw at INSEAD, one of the top business schools uh, in the world based in France and Singapore. They saw that their classmates that, you know, were coming from developing nations really struggled to get the money. While, you know, an American or European, you know, had an easier time. So they started there, you know, for the first five years, developing a product 
that could ultimately help people no matter what university they, they attend. So yeah. it's, it's a real need that uh, that people are looking for and universities crave basically. We'll, we'll come back to, I suppose, the student angle in a second, but as, as head of new business then, um, who are your customers? Who are you actually yeah. selling to? So for the first uh, five years at Prodigy Finance, I, I basically built a business development and marketing team and at these school relationships that you know that we have all around the world. And over the last six months, we we basically said, look, we, we need to expand. We need to help more people, not only the ones that are going to study, but actually, what about the people that actually finished their degrees, you know, had to take a very expensive loan from their home country or from some other lender, and now have an amazing job and actually should get credit that's appropriate to their risk profile. So um, as the head of new business, we, you know, we've actually had demand for, the, for more than three years for a product of refinancing or, or basically consolidating debt for working graduates. And you know, I'm, happy, I'm very excited after you know, a, a six month small pilot, we finally relaunched uh, a couple of weeks ago, a product exactly for this, for you know, a, a different client base. So it's, it's the same type of individual, but now has a job and they have a very good, you know, very good job, high paying salary, but they have a very expensive loan, sometimes, you know, 13 to up to 20% APR. And it makes no sense based on their credit risk profile. So we've, we've launched refinancing loans for residents of both the UK and the US. Uh, so they can really get rid of very expensive debt, consolidate the debt, and just have more, more financial flexibility while developing their credit scores in the new country that they're living in. Do you have any stats around how many people who go to study abroad then actually stay resident in the country where they've studied? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously fascinating, the, the global movement of people uh, from one country to another. So, so on average, we, we see that you know, a good two-thirds of individuals initially stay for the first, I would say, like three to five years. Mm. And after that, you know, it actually switches around, you know, about 60 to, you know, 65% of people actually go back to their home country. So there's this whole concept of, you know, brain drain from developing nations. It's, it's not at all like that. You know, maybe the first couple of years, you know, they want to get the experience in that country. You know, they want to pay off that expensive debt, uh, especially, you know, in, in countries like the US or the UK, but they actually go back to their home countries more often than not. Uh, but it just takes a couple of years, which is actually great because they get the work experience, not only the educational experience, to actually give back and develop companies back in their own country. And actually, we have lots of use cases where we have people that have gone back to you know countries like India, countries like Brazil, and actually have now 20, 30, 40, 50 person companies that they've developed based on their skill sets and their network that they develop you know, either in the in the schools in you know in the top countries that they've studied in, like the US or the UK. So do you think do you think that benefits the countries where they're studying? Because obviously they're getting, as you said there, they're getting three to five years worth of the majority of these people's time, but they are then returning to their countries. I suppose it's a bit double-edged as to whether or not it's helping their competitive edge. Yeah, so I mean, so it, it's it's a it's an interesting question. I, I definitely think it helps the countries because you know the I, I believe that the, the stat is that the, the U.S. educational system brings. I don't know, it was like 10 or $20 billion of revenue because of international students that are coming to study in the US. These are people that are wow. you know, paying a tuition, you know, getting an apartment, you know, getting food, how, like, everything that they need to, to live, and then they're giving back to their economy. So it's such an important part of their GDP 
And yes, you, you could say, you know, after, you know, two, you know, two thirds could actually go back. But the reality is that they give a lot back to the, you know, to the US or the UK or whatever country they, you know, they're, they're leaving because they, they've learned the culture, they live on mindset, you know, they're going to create that network. They're never going to lose that, uh, you know, that alumni, you know, and connection to the, to the home country that they, they studied in. So the, the, the benefits are actually very, very long term, uh, which are, I think, are fascinating for this global movement of people, which most likely will end up in other countries in the future, you know, be it uh, Singapore, Dubai, which is you know, very open to people from all over the world. So I think that it's a, it's a very positive cross-border movement that is happening now in the world. Out of interest, how do you think borderless financing then is affecting the, the global higher education marketplace? Because you, you mentioned that you work with top schools, okay? Now, the top schools, invariably, they, they want the top talent, as you said, but if, if, if they can find a way to get the, the, the top people to those institutions, I'd imagine that they probably can find ways with grants and they've got the money to be able to do so and bursaries, etc. Um, but is there a, a, maybe a, a, an argument for the tier below the very top schools that they would be significantly interested in in this model because that would help their competitiveness as an institution within their local uh, leagues, etc., or league tables. Yeah. So cross border lending has definitely uh, democratized education. It doesn't matter now what your background is. If you come from a rural village, from a you know from a developing nation, if you are a top talent, you will get access to the funding needed. You know, to succeed and go to you know the top school in the world. Yeah. What obviously this also forces is that you know these mid-tier schools all around the world really need to step up. You know, they really need to prepare material that will you know that, that will get people employed in the future. So actually, we one of the really interesting trends that we've been seeing is that there's a, there's a really strong growth of STEM programs mm. in mid-tier uh, in mid-tier schools around the world. So everything related to science, technology you know, engineering and mathematics, you know, there's lots of programs that are now, you know, focused on business analytics, data science, all the, you know, all the future needs for the, the new jobs that are appearing. And this trend is, you know, universities now will have to compete with potentially, you know, um, coding academies or academies that are really focused on learning a specific skill set that will help you, you know, get the job you succeed in the future. So. It's definitely increasing the quality, which I think is really, really important for you know any any university, and definitely democratizing, which I think is a huge benefit for the whole of the society as a whole. How, how long has the business? How long has um, Prodigy Finance been running? So we've been uh, we've been now doing this for about ten years. We've cool. just had this one product, obviously, um, but we've really grown from the number of schools and the different type of degrees. You know, so we've really expanded, and in it, we've, we've had to really improve. You know our legal processes, our operational processes, and especially our risk processes, so, because look, we do look, something unique. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just interesting on that on that point of that, that, that lifespan, because I would assume over the course of 10 years, you've always seen the US as a particularly attractive destination for people all over the world. But have there been any other uh, flows in the movement of people, trends that you've seen changing, or, or stuff that's just... That, I, that makes interesting commentary for the for the global tech market, especially when you consider that those skills around STEM are in such high demand. Yeah, so I mean, we we entered the US about five years ago, and we really concentrated in the UK and Europe for the first five years of our life. Uh, but the last two years, with you know, with everything that's been happening about Brexit, uh, regarding the, the change of politics in the US, we we have seen some fascinating changes. So it's, we've obviously seen. A huge pickup in Canadian schools. Right. You know, obviously, um, 
you know, Canada has not changed its, its politics or, you know, social, social movement. So a huge growth and interest in Canadian schools. And also we've seen a huge growth in European schools. You know, um, Germany, you know, for example, has amazing universities that sometimes didn't get as much attention as, you know, as, as British schools because of the, you know, the language is not as well known by a lot of people. But actually because it's based in Europe with the, you know, the, the high employment rates, we've actually seen a lot more demand coming in, in, into, uh, into European ones. While the UK, you know, there's, there's question marks, you know. We've definitely seen, you know, lots of, you know, lots of demand for, you know, the top schools, you know, like a, like an Oxford, you know, like Cambridge, LSE, you know, London Business School. But other schools that, you know, are not top, top, you know, people are starting to wonder, you know, will I be able to get a job after I study? Um, which the same thing is in the U.S. So those questions start affecting, you know, certain universities. And we do see these, like, changes in the, in the migration and demand of people, which are just fascinating. The great thing about product finance is we have presence worldwide, so we can adapt where that demand is coming from, basically. I think that's fascinating, especially given that London is so heavily reliant on migrant labour. You know, you look at the tech, yeah. the tech scene, 33% of, of, of uh, people working in the tech sector in London are migrants, 25% across the UK as a whole. So, so warning signs there for competitiveness, I suppose, of our industry. Um, yeah. Look, just a quick question then to, to finish on that I think would be interesting. Um, as a head of new business for a startup, effectively, well, maybe not a startup, but a growth up style business, um, what challenges have you faced that um, you think make for interesting learnings for anyone else? Because strategic partnerships and new business within an emerging tech business that you know it's it, it can be a challenging role and, and any kind of insight that you can give would be fascinating yeah and, and we've had uh very honestly our, our fair share of you know challenges as a growth company and you know since i've lived that from that startup you know i was employee number 25 you know to now you know to 200 employees like it's, it's a huge change in the way in our the way we do things our processes and yeah, so my, the first advice is before you really start you know that scaling process you need to make sure you're all your internal processes, operations, and your tech structure is as stable as possible. So, you know, we, we just launched this refinance product. You know, we would have wanted to launch it, you know, two years ago, but we needed to get our core product as stable as possible before we did it. Because if not, you know, we'd introduce a lot more uncertainty, a lot more risk. So having that stability is, is obviously absolutely necessary, but at the same time, it's challenging because, you know, you want to grow, 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 grow. So how do you balance that risk and, and growth? So, that's an open discussion all the time that's needed. And then, you know, from a hiring perspective, you know, when you start, you know, hitting that 100-person magical number, you know, and you don't know everyone's name, you know, you, you don't know, you know, every, what everyone's doing, you need to create that trust and reporting and process structure um, that, that you can really scale. So that, for me, has been a fascinating uh, experience, a, a really, really important learning. And I feel quite comfortable now that we are in a stable situation where we'll be able to develop new products and actually have a product management structure rollout that will make it very easy, you know, and mm. cross-border lending, you know, is just a start, you know, there's, you know, there's credit cards, personal loans, mortgages, I think about all the finances, financial products that someone needs when they leave, they leave their home country and they don't have that, you know, credit history report with them because they're very very challenging especially in countries like the us or uk which um you you need that local presence in order to get access to the financial services 
Hey, just a quick question then to finish on, Ricardo. I know I said the last the last question was the last question, but um, you mentioned at the beginning that uh, you're obviously having a big company get together in Cape Town, uh, and you work remotely now. You joined as as employee twenty five. You're now over two hundred. In that time, have you seen a move towards uh, more of a, a distributed um, workforce, or have you consolidated into offices? What what direction has the business gone in, and, and why? So. Definitely, we want to attract the best talent, no matter where they are. So, for example, in our London office, eighty percent of our of the of the team is actually not British. So, you know, we are attracting people. That being said, we do want to keep the culture. So, having people in the main offices is definitely a preference. But we are open for you know working working remotely, and and I see that we will have even more of that uh, in the future. The key key aspect is maintaining that culture. So you definitely need to have people, you know, come to the, I don't want to say like, you know, mother office, you know, our London and, and Cape Town offices at least two times a year, even three or four, so they can maintain that get-togetherness, getting to know each other more because there's so much know-how in the company that doesn't get shared when you're remote that, you know, it would, would be lost. Uh, but it is finding that, that right balance because I do believe talent, you know, is anywhere in the world. It's, you know, it's something that we believe in our company or by cross-border talent that we're helping. So you know we would you know we hire people no matter where they are. Look, it's amazing to to have a have a conversation with you. Thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts Our on pleasure. the podcast. Safe flight to, to Cape Town. I hope that it is beautiful spring weather out there for you. Thank you very much. Uh, very much looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, no, thank you. No pleasure. Well, have a great one, and thanks for this opportunity to share a little more about product finance. Migrant labour. Everyone. Well, let's be fair. Immigration is at the heart of just about everything in political discourse at the moment. Mm-hmm. I love the point that um, Ricardo makes around the US education um, industry being worth somewhere in the region of kind of 10 or $20 billion to the economy and how hugely important it is to the GDP of that country and the benefits of the movement of peoples. We're and that might that. be heavily, heavily loaded to start with, but I think... It's a wonderfully fantastic, positive, open message. Do you reckon the big man makes all that? You know, an extra $20 million potentially going into his economy, but, you know, how he feels about migrant workers and stuff? I just think that if there's a technology solution that can promote the positive aspects of the free movement of peoples, it should be lauded right now. It's huge, as mm-hmm. he would say. It's huge. Well, that was an awful. I thought that was like Graham Souness. It's actually a bang on accent. <laughs> That was awful. <laughs> anyway, no, but uh, you're, you're right. You know, and I was I was sitting there when he, when when Ricardo made that point. I was scratching my head saying, "How? How can they be up to twenty billion dollars extra?" And then he was like, "Think about what they're doing. They're paying yeah. tuition, yeah. Part, apartments, food, booze, yeah. whatever." And yeah, and and I think it's really interesting when he talks about STEM. He talks about STEM, he talks about the growth of mid-tier institutions and that global trend. I thought that was an interesting reaction he kind of points out about coding academies, but the democratisation of education and it all being around technology. But also that there's been a huge pickup in Canadian and European schools, you know, Mm. Germany over the UK, because there's that, you know, outside of if you go into a Russell Group University, can I get a job post my studies? And when we're we're in a climate where we're crying out for people who've got science and technology expertise, Mm. that's a worrying trend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, people get put off by Trump, people are certainly getting put off by Brexit, and that is affecting their higher education, you know. We know in business that diversity of thought equals success. It's the same in education, it's the same for universities. Um, It actually made me really upset and disappointed with, uh, yet again, with our country, because 
LSE, Oxford and Cambridge have no trouble because they're the three big ones for their certain fields or whatever. But mm. there's fantastic universities here that people are getting put off because they don't know what's going to happen in the years after they, they graduate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, 33% of London, migrant labour. Uh, we're aware of the challenges locally. If you're, you know, if you're from a fairly low-income family in the north of England, um, then your options for higher education are unfortunately getting uh, strangled. Mm. But equally... Let's think about all the amazing people that we could be missing out on in developing countries who could be benefiting our economy and our, our industries and our companies, British companies. A lot of these companies are started in the UK. They're started in London. They might be Their growth might be fueled by migrant labour, but they are British companies, and, and we're missing out on that innovation and that growth. The NHS will miss out as well. You know, We have a lot of foreign doctors, nurses that come over. I know it's slightly outside of the educational remit. And, you know, if you're, I know, it leads to it. Yeah, it does, it's, it's all part of the same bubble, and we're going to miss out on a lot of fantastic talent in the next five to ten years because of Brexit. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. you can't underestimate like the importance of diversity in the workforce and, and how much um, people from different countries can bring can bring to um, education. And like and like, I think it was a really interesting point where he made. Um, you know, where you challenge them about, oh, is it really helpful for the country if they're then going back to their home country in a few years? And he made that point of, I, I don't think never any, gonna... by the way, I don't think anyone's accused me before of asking a challenging question. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'll take that. Top journalist over here. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think it was a really interesting point he made that then they're, they're still bringing and learning so much from here as well as adding to it and that's never going to go away because you know I went to a Russell group in Sheffield where the, there was quite a high percentage of international students and, and now that we've all graduated um, there are some people that have stayed there are some people that have gone back but it's you know they are going to always have that connection to Sheffield mm. they're always going to have that connection to the teachers there and the things they learnt there and, and, and all of that and uh, and some people do forge careers here so it's not you know it's not a case of you, you don't like education is not in isolation and it's, it's going to impact the um, the rest of your career. So it's, yeah. yeah. Ricardo calls it, he says it's, it's not a brain drain from developing countries. You know, yeah. people come here and stay or go back. Yeah. I think his stats sort of show that there is no real rhyme or reason. You know, 60 to 65% tend to go back, he said. You yeah. know? Mm. So that to me... But that's after three to five years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not immediately after the, the, they graduate. And I think it's... It's important for them to stay on for a year or two and soak up more of the culture as it is for their classmates to learn about where they've come from, their backgrounds. Yeah. Because a lot of places in the UK, university is the first chance you'll get to meet a truly yeah. diverse person from a totally different background of country. Yeah. So it's, it's a sort of self-revolving kind of yeah. circle of nice. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, you know, at school, um, there was one person from uh, an ethnic minority in my entire school. Wow. In my entire high school, one person. Yeah. Wow. That explains why you don't get any diverse guests on the show, Dave. Cheers, mate. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, and, and, but to your point, I went to Essex University, which is, as you did, which is, <laughs> that's why it translates to audio. Gun fingers to that, because I was yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But it's, you know, I think, I think at the time it might not be now, but it was the most ethnically diverse it's uh, got, university in the country. It's got the, um, it's the most nationalities. It's not the most uh, foreign students, but the most, the, the biggest plethora of nationalities for any UK university. It certainly has probably the biggest Greek population of students. Chinese as well. There's a lot of Greeks that go to universities, yeah. which is fantastic when they have society nights and cook lots of Greek oh, food. Oh, I love oh. it. <laughs> 
there is a reason for diversity. Yeah, there the great food. My stomach. That's why we love London, really, because of all the diverse choices of food. Yeah. Um, on the advice point that he had for other startups, I did like yeah. his uh, his idea. Sorry not his idea, his explanation that creating trust when you don't know everyone's name can be a bit of a challenge. And obviously yeah. that stability piece, and that can be kind of overlooked. Like you're mm. growing yeah. so fast, you've got new people coming through the door. Mm. That balance between stability and getting to know your colleagues, because let's face it, in any working environment, being able to rely upon the people that you work oh. with is such a key thing. Yeah. But then they, you know, he's off, or oh, I'm sure it's happened by now, but a week-long work doing Cape Town. You mm. know, if, that, if that's not an amazing thing for a work culture to do, yeah. because they work in silo remotely in some offices and stuff like that, getting more scared for a week-long fun fest, it's amazing. Imagine if our business did that, though. I don't think many of us would make it back. Uh, but, no, probably not. But <laughs> it's a really good idea, and you know, especially when there is some disparity in location and things like that, yeah. to all come together get to know each other you probably do a bit of awkward speed dating or whatever you know but it's fun it's good yeah with remote working it, it can make it difficult to to um like connect completely with mm. everyone you're working with because it's just not it's not the same it's like not the same, is it? it's, it's really not yeah. you know slack's great but it's just yeah you kind of lose that cohesion a little bit mm. i think mm. yeah mm. Let's bring the first part of the show to um, a pause. We'll be back in a moment with part two. Sean, being the expert journalist that she is, will have something far more interesting than myself or Jack can bring to the table. And I've got an example. It's not an article. And we will be discussing some feedback from uh, some of our audience, which is always exciting. So that's to come. Stay tuned. So Jack, are you getting over the January blues? Have you got New Year's resolutions? Uh, no to both. Well, two books that might be able to help you come up with some, some targets for the new year. Yeah. The Art of Life Admin by Elizabeth Emmons. Okay. Available on Audible, that's a new release. And The World's Fittest Book by Ross Edgley, uh, the cover of which will shame you into the gym. It's a very really? good man. Ah, uh, they might have used an old stock photo of me for that then. I don't think so. No. He's about three jacks wide. Wow. Yeah, but there are new releases on Audible that might help you ease into the new year in a positive frame of mind. I'll give them a go. Prior to Christmas, we sent out a guide with some predictions uh, for 2019 from some of the leaders that we'd had at our most recent live event. And we took it out on LinkedIn and we asked a whole load of different connections and people who listen to the show and so on uh, what their predictions would be for 2019. And we got a lot of replies, which yeah. was well, rather... Well, we get on Twitter. Yeah, which was <laughs> very gratifying. And actually, there's some really interesting uh, comments here from, from some people and we thought that we would share them back with you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Date looks at me as if to say, "Go on then, Jack." <laughs> um, so uh, we quite well, quite a while. Jeff Medeman uh, mm-hmm. slid into the DMs uh, to talk about retail technology, um, specifically physical retail. Now, I could talk about that all day because I actually experienced it myself last year, Dave. And yeah. Sharp. And Jeff, Jeff's point, by the way, in the past he'd worked uh, in house and consulting with the likes of, of Sainsbury's and House of Fraser. So. Um, he had a, a really good insight from not just kind of how to not end up like HMV. Yeah, he ends it with, doesn't he? Yeah. And so the point being is, you know, technology within uh, retail can potentially save the high street in that you can virtually try stuff on in shops now. So Rosie and I were in America uh, last year mm. in New York. Um, I don't know if um, for men and women listening. The best makeup store in the world apparently is Sephora. News to me. 
But Rosie said, we have to go to Sephora when we get to America. I need to get this eyeshadow, lipstick, whatever, while we're here. Fair yeah. enough, whatever. Anyway, so I'm doing the classic boyfriend thing of, you know, mooching around while she tries stuff on and puts different shades on whatever. And I walk across this, like, giant iPad screen. Obviously, I'm attracted to it immediately. <laughs> go up to it. My face appears on it. Again, I'm only going to be further attracted to it because I'm seeing myself. And then it was like, right, begin your own makeup tutorial. So there I go, putting blusher on my eyes, mascara, lipstick, and all the rest of it. And I have a photo, the example, that Ryder will put out alongside the show so you can see the technology there. And look, I don't wear makeup, but if someone does, this is fantastic. I think eyeliner would look great on you. Guy yeah. liner. <laughs> yeah. Make it masculine. It. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's what they used to call God. it. Like Blink 182 yeah. and Green Day and yeah. stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> But I mean, look, if you are, if you're wearing makeup, it's an expensive thing. And also yeah. if you try it on, it's on your face then for as long as you want. Whereas this is like totally virtual. Yeah. It's yeah. like your digital face and it puts makeup around it. And I mean, I got told I look like, does anyone remember Conchita Verse from um, Eurovision? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do, mate. Yeah. We'll have to share well, that on the Instagram account. Well, Conchita won Eurovision, so I'm. No, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to share yeah. your image yeah, 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 from yeah. your trial on HN yeah. Tech Talks <laughs> yeah. on Instagram. Um, for anyone. And we'll stick it on Twitter as well. Put it everywhere, I don't care. Um, but yeah, there's, so, there's a couple more points you've got. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. just, just very quickly yeah, yeah, on, on yeah, Jeff, yeah. I mean, he does say specifically, he says um, that an area that is still massively underserved is by technology innovation in shops. And, yeah. and, that, and that proves the point. It's definitely a thing though, because I um, uh, spoke to uh, a futurologist, um, John Lewis, I think it was like last year, the year before. So I don't know where they are with it now, but um, he works with JLab, which is like the innovation yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, lab for John Lewis. And they um, started working on similar tech where you could um, like look at how a, a sofa would look like in your room and stuff so ah, it's yeah so it's not so it, yeah so then yeah which is it's actually would be useful because you don't have to just be like so where would it go yeah like would it fit there um and yeah so yeah it's definitely useful i mean if you're sad like me i have actually taken a photo of like my lounge wall and then sort of superimposed in the painting we wanted to buy to see how it looked, which is sad as fuck and you know like I said Jack, John Lewis and, and I think uh, Magnolia Market are doing something quite similar in that you can place stuff via your AR functionality on your phone into your house to see what it looks like I'm going to skip through a couple of these other points quickly um Guy Matthews got in touch. He was talking very much about 5G. So 5G is going to be transformative. Qualcomm stating that 5G uh, will have more of an impact, sorry, or an impact that is more profound than electricity. Um, Saying something. Yeah, yeah. That is, yeah, that's quite quite a bold... But it's, and he makes the point, it's, this, is a, this is a fair point, that it's not about getting stuff to your mobile, whilst that's still a significant part, but it opens up other technologies. So new art, data architectures, so on, uh, that will have increased speed, um, the increasing amount of data that you can access to and decrease the latency as well. So 5G could be a really transformative tech uh, in the year to come. He also mentioned that he believes that, that Bill Gates has said that people overestimate the tech changes that occur within the next two years and underestimate those coming in the next 10 years. He said that he finds it interesting that he meets a lot of C-level staff who is still fixated by current problems in the next 12 months, which is probably a fair yeah. commentary on, this, on the sector. He also mentions AI and healthcare. 
He does. He does. Which is just really cool. I um, want yeah, to do surgery on me ASAP. <laughs> Ricardo Poeta got in touch. So many people dedicated to developing new technologies and are trying to find the next golden egg, but I believe that ethics and legislation will be the main focus for next year's debate. Goes on to make the point that with it, with that at the centre of political debates, we can expect further political polarisation. Well, there's a lovely thought for the year ahead. <laughs> Even further polarisation. So that's good. That's, that's what we need. One, wasn't it? No, but it's true though. Look, you, you, Regulation and, and um, people power is, is increasingly an important part of the debate. And regulation and ethics can't keep up with technology either. Both struggle as technology advances. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Ron, and this is going to be fun, Ron van Blasterveld. No. No. It's just Blasterveld. Okay. Uh, said very similar. <laughs> he, he had a very positive AI message, but again, around the need for a people-centred um, economy. Mm. So uh, the way businesses are currently organised, only a very small percentage of people being happy in their jobs, perhaps around 10%. That's wow. rather sad. Wow. That is uh, very depressing. So we need a new way to structure organisations, allowing people uh, to be who they are and allowing the companies to benefit from their talents. AI should allow us to build a bridge between talents of individuals and the goals of an organisation. I thought that was a really positive AI message yeah. there. From yeah, Ron. we don't hear enough positive around AI other than our own voices, so I'm a big fan of that. Um, finally, Jack, I know that you had picked up that uh, Andrew Amore had got in touch to say that he thought tech was going to get weirder. Yeah, <laughs> love that point. Love that point. As I mean, yeah. we do see it. I mean, I, I brought an article today the other day uh, the last week's show that I, I didn't realise was actually a year-old article and the headline was just simply, bionic penises are coming and you can't stop them. Yeah, well, oh, exactly. And deep fake porn is, is terrifying. Have you not heard of this? Deep fake? Deep fake. Oh, oh, what? Oh. Like where um, there's, yeah, there's, there's no um, porn that's, that's become more prevalent where people actually superimpose like celebrities oh, or like people they don't like onto porn and it looks like a real video and Scarlett Johansson has actually come out and said like just don't even bother trying to stop it it's still gonna happen that's uh, horrifying so it's really it's really scary because it could be used to to blackmail people or um yeah like that's awful make it seem real when it's not and you won't and like like you know only the trained people will be able to learn so. oh, a, a positive message Andrew does state that the you know weirdness he was talking about would be the abattoir next year which is a mix of hologram <laughs> and let's get back to it's something a little deep. bit more happy I was just going to add to Sean's point well at least now Piers Morgan can quite literally fuck himself yeah. <laughs> moving on positive. 2019 <laughs> is looking good yeah. right Sean um what have you got for us? Yeah, so it's not a very sexy story today, but um, I think it's, although it all fracking mm. always leads to size and people are kind of like not really interested or they're just a bit over it. Um, Manchester's not over it. Yeah. No, exactly. Go so the region's mayor, Andy Burnham, has actually um, come out to ban it in all 10 uh, local councils in Greater Manchester, um, which is a really big move. And he actually described it as quite a radical policy, making quite a big statement. That's quite. Uh, yeah, lots of quites. Um, but no, I just, I just think it's... Um, with tech, it's always interesting the disparity between like how um, innovative we are in like healthcare um, and and industries like that. But in energy, there's such a like discourse between um, people that are really moving forward. You know, like innovative tech like solar tech mm-hmm. that you can charge like a table that can charge your phone and things like that. And then there's this big oil companies and fracking and all of these old big things that you know everything we're doing is 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 
sadly, pretty redundant unless we <coughs> focus um, on that more. This might, dichotomy, this, this yeah. might be a really naive comment. You're speaking to someone who used to work in the energy industry as well. Well, when you talk about health tech, yeah. you know, you talk about doctors, for the most part, they really genuinely want to help people. Yeah. And if the NHS isn't quite meeting the needs... Um, you know, we've, we've had people on the show in the past, uh, like Lydia Hunt, who was a trained doctor, but has, has started Forward Health because they want to try and help the NHS. And they didn't quite feel that they could do it within the structures that were available. Yeah. So they're, they're creating positive technology solutions to an existing problem. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have Babylon on the show. And that's, again, a similar yeah. kind of circumstance where you've got doctors using technology to prov- try and provide better um, tech to help yeah. people in big energy companies do you have that same social minded individual unfortunately I'm not saying that people who work in big energy companies are bad people of course I'm not but you don't have someone who's trained to be a doctor and really wants to help people the only time I think we're going to see real progress in in something like energy tech is when it makes financial sense to those big organisations I I, I just want to say and I don't want to get like overstep the mark or anything here but I think it's shit that we're still trying to go after fossil fuels still mm. trying to get oil still mm. deep sea diving and all that stuff when the, the solution is already here mm. electric cars electric transport mm. solar as you mentioned Sean yeah. you know there's a million and one other ways that we can transport now or that we can you know mm. because yeah, it's not uh, in the interests of those in the industry no. exactly yeah but that is the sad thing but I mean this you know this is a positive step and, and it means yeah. that, that people are gonna you know they are gonna do their best to stop it happening I mean it's all, but we're in a bubble at the end of the day. Yeah. We're in a city yeah. where it's not going to happen yeah. because it wouldn't be able to happen. Sure. But there are people's homes that are being ripped up, like people being evacuated, and you know their entire lives are being changed so that some people can make some money out yeah. of shale gas. Yeah. Uh, and we're not really talking about it because it does. It does tie into some points that we were making before Christmas. So before Christmas, when we were talking uh, about public and we were talking about yeah. trade tech, yeah, 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 we were talking yeah, yeah. about the fact that you know does does the nation state. Um, have the ability to meet the needs of its of its populace now, yeah, and if you look go. at if you look at fracking yeah. and the decision that central government has made over fracking versus yeah. you know do local governments do city mayors now yeah. have the power to actually make the decisions that mm. that represent people best? You know, say what you will about um, Labour versus Conservatives in various different places. You know, you got Andy Street who's conservative in Birmingham looking after the interests of Birmingham's population with the automotive industry. Here's Andy Burnham from Labour. Yeah. Um, in Manchester, yeah. standing up to fracking. Yeah. Um, in Tees, in the Tees Valley region, uh, Ben, he's a Conservative mayor, and he's looking at flying in the face of of policy. You'd say really around Brexit by having a free port and 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 looking at technology solutions. So you've got you've got locally people really um, championing yeah. the interests of their people in a way that central government just cannot do which is great because that that is a way more de- democratic process than you know things just being decided by a few people sitting in in one room in in london so uh, it's a nice little segue to remind people that on the 31st of january at the Westworks at 6 p.m we're we fracking will, we're <laughs> causing minor earthquakes all over the uh, no, uh, we are having um a talk all about GovTech with Dr. Hannah Allen from Babylon, with Gillian Kowalchuk uh, from Safe in the City and with Johnny Hugo from Public. So you should definitely come to that if that has piqued your interest. Yes. Like Sean said, and I can't believe I missed that in my ethical tirade, you know, people are getting evacuated from their homes to do this for one fat cat to get a big paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not on. Are you... 
it's know. not. Yeah, and with GovTech, I feel like a lot of it, the, the startups seem to be bridging the gap that, that government can't or won't because it's not in, in their, their profit interests, um, which which is, it's promising and while it's also sad. Um, but yeah, there's definitely potential for startups to to push us forward when government stagnates yeah. um, there's you know with the energy especially there's um, but they need strong regional support to do that yeah of course in Manchester as well there's a there's a huge um, electrical what's it called like they so they have this huge electric they, they can produce electricity there basically like inside like it's like a lab that right. they, oh, make, okay. they make electricity themselves um, but on his the the thing that we don't really talk about when we talk about electricity is that if we are going to start focusing on it we need to talk more about how we're going to um, deal with the stress on the electrical grid because if we yeah. are going to start uh, relying on it more then we need then we need a better system otherwise there is only so much that it so can handle on that um, more people need solar to pay mm. back into the grid and, and to take ownership yeah. of their electricity but yeah. that can't happen under this government and it couldn't even happen under the, the coalition because I mean the, the Lib Dems when they were part of the coalition this was their big thing it's called the Green Deal they really yeah. wanted to drive away anyone can get access to funding part fund solar panels on their house get a new yeah. boiler and things like that for a reasonable price yeah. now once the Lib Dems were kicked out and it was just the Conservative government, that fell on its face. And my old business and many other businesses like it, Climate Energy, they were called, sunk because they couldn't get the funding from the government. People couldn't get the funding from the government to install this. We can get it to install it on their behalf. So thousands, I'm not lying, thousands of customers went without solar panels when they wanted it and were ready to commit to it. Yeah. So it's David Cameron's fault, just like Brexit. <laughs> and we've gone full circle. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might be the most... Political, politically yeah. charged episode of the podcast we've ever done. Can I just add to that one little thing? <laughs> oh, really? It's totally <laughs> surplus to any conversation we've had. But I watched a film last night that I really want to recommend to everyone. It's called The Favourite. Oh yeah, the I new, really want to watch uh, that. Uh, yeah. uh, Olivia uh, Coleman. Yeah, Olivia Coleman, Rachel Wise, and um, Emma Stone. From Peep Show. And it, oh, it is hilarious. It's brilliant. But um, uh, Chris, I can't remember his name. Who's the lad from uh, About a Boy? Who's now a man? Oh, he's also an X-Men. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Nicholas and Holt. Body. Yeah, Nicholas. Nicholas Holt. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. he plays uh, a 17th century conservative leader. Oh, wow. And it is so funny. It, honestly, I don't want to give away any of the jokes, apart from one. <laughs> right? So they wear the big wigs, like yeah. the huge wigs. And uh, Chris Holt's character is persuading it, uh, someone in his party to chat up a woman. He puts the wig on him and he goes... It goes in, doesn't go well with a girl, comes out and goes, I don't think the wig's working. Like, she didn't like it. He goes, well, how else are you meant to make yourself look pretty then, young man? Which really made me laugh about (laughs) masculinity, how it's gone from wearing wigs and stuff like that. Yeah, you started it. You literally started it. I highly recommend that film. On that note... We hope that you have. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Start for Piers Morgan, end on films. The Tech Talks podcast. (laughs) Yes. We hope that you have a lovely weekend. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, with uh, a couple of interesting shows, um, one of which will be related to our event that we mentioned because we've got Dr. Hannah Allen from Babylon Health coming on. Uh, but until then, have a lovely weekend and we'll catch up with you soon. Bye. Bye.